G'day everyone and welcome to this week's episode on the Scallops Podcast. Today we are talking with Sean Flynn. This is going to be part one of two part uh, episodes with uh, Sean Flynn. He is an investment banker. Uh, don't be um, put off by the big scary name. He's not a big scary guy and it's all sort of corporate. He's actually super personable, but he's he's fundamentally an expert in um, doing transactions, you know, helping people sell businesses in the 10 mil to like 300 mil sort of range. So if you're in the kind of business where you think you might get to two or three or four or $5 million um, in earnings, then this is a podcast you absolutely need to be listening to. And if you've got some intention of selling your business at some point in the future, this is going to, we're really going to be sharing a lot of secrets as to how does the, how does the process work? How should you be preparing your business for sale? What are the things to be thinking about along the way? When should you get tax planning? What happens in due diligence? Where does the, what are all the steps in the process for negotiating? What are the things that are going to impact valuation? What are the things that are going to make people want to pay less uh, for your business rather than more? Where, you know, what's the difference between a strategic buyer and a financial buyer? And which one is probably the right one for you? So today we're going to tackle some of those questions. And next time we're going to be talking about you know, the, the nitty gritty and some of the terms that you can negotiate that optimize the sale process. We're going to be talking about management meetings and how they work. We're going to talk about um, the challenges of actually running your business whilst you're also running a process and how you minimize the disruption to your uh, company. We'll talk about brokers versus M&A advisors versus investment bankers and the difference. We're going to talk about some of the secrets uh, on the buying side. So what are some of the games that get played on the buying side so you can help better prepare yourself for those? There's going to be lots to cover. Uh, I think you're absolutely going to love today's episode with Sean Flynn. And then please, of course, also join us for part two when that happens. Welcome to the Scale-Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day everyone and welcome to the Scalers Podcast where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their businesses, make bigger decisions with greater confidence and maximize the value and impact they can have in the world. I am your host, Sean Steele, and I'm joined today by Sean Flynn, principal at a mid-market investment bank, um, focusing primarily, Sean, on mergers and acquisitions, growth capital for the kind of, what would you say, like 10 to 250 mil revenue range, maybe like three to 25 mil EBITDA, would that be right? That's right. I mean, we focus on those transactions between 10 and 300 million. And the numbers you just said, those are the companies that fall in that space. Fall in that space. And I guess if it was a SaaS company or something, it might be like, you know, I don't know, one mil plus in recurring revenue or SaaS has been or... insane <laughs> the last couple of years. Like, literally, they could 500 bucks. <laughs> it, literally, it could. I mean, I, I've seen some crazy things of the craziest one I've ever seen so far was 40 times revenue. For, for a 40 company, times revenue, 40 times what? revenue by a company that did barely 1 million in revenue that year. That's the craziest one I've seen to date. Wow. So that's, yeah, uh, there had to be something insane. there in the tech that I just didn't know, but, um, Jeez. yeah, <laughs> somebody makes money out of that. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, Sean, you and I, uh, offline, uh, realized that actually we're twins, which is quite exciting because we've got the same first name. We, we, we discovered we have the same, <laughs> the same color in our virtual backgrounds. You're the only other person that I've seen like me who has a QR code linked to his LinkedIn profile in his virtual background. We're probably the same age. And although you've got a nice clean shaven head, I'm still working towards mine, but I'm getting pretty close. So <laughs> nice to meet my brother. <laughs> well, you just got me on the right day of the week. I mean, if this was any other day, you'd see stubble on the side. So 
<laughs> I love it. So, um, Sean, you like today is really about M and A, right? So we'll, we'll talk a bit about our community, but our community is probably at that lower end of the kinds of clients that you work with. But therefore, there's so much value for them to learn from the kinds of clients that you um, that you support. You know, we've got a lot of people that are in that probably one to three mil EBITDA range. Um, and I'm, I'm keen to come back to your background before we kick off. But you know, this is that's the space that I actually spent the last four years of my time doing acquisitions as well, and so. Yeah, there's probably a multi-part series for us here to unpack uh, all the things that we might like to share. But really, I, I'm keen to unpack. You know, we've got we've got a lot of people in the audience who are likely this is likely their last business. You know, many of them are in that sort of like a 45 to 60 year old range. They've built this business, maybe it's taken them 10 years, and they've got a certain amount of energy left for it. They want to realize some value at some point, so they're starting to think about their exit strategy. And so today's really about looking, you know, talking through your experience and thinking about. How do we help them optimize that? What, what, is the, what does the process look like? What drives better valuations? How should they think about preparation? How do they think about incentivizing management? Should they be selling to a strategic or a financial? Like there's so many questions and there's no way we're going to cover them all today, but I think we'll just get started and, uh, and see where it leads us. Hey? And then if we need to do another, another episode, then we will. Um, but your background, I just thought I'd start there because you didn't start life as a typical kind of investment banker, um, you know, kind of following the typical path straight out of uni into a top tier consulting firm into a graduate program and then straight into kind of uh, investment banking and junior analyst roles. And it seems like there's like a designed path to get, <laughs> to get people into your role. And you took a completely different path, starting with founding and scaling uh, and exiting a business in Beijing. Can you just give us a quick insight into that journey? Because I think people really will uh, will get some value out of the fact that you come with a different perspective. I mean, you're 100% right. I'll, I'll go to many, many events and people go, wait, wait, what What did you do before? Like that background, I've never heard it before. It doesn't make any sense. But it kind of does make sense when you put all the pieces together. Uh, after uni, I, I well, during uni, I really wanted to travel abroad, but I was doing mechanical engineer. Because of that major, I just had to be heads down in my books in order to graduate, whereas all my buddies were taking a semester or quarter abroad. We were on the quarter system. And so the whole last two years of university, I was like, okay, as soon as I graduate, I'm going abroad. Once I graduated, I went down to Costa Rica. I thought I was going to be there for a couple of weeks, stayed almost two years. From there, <laughs> I was doing some research. This was 2005, 2007. I was, I was seeing that China was taking over the world. They were opening up call centers in Costa Rica to speak Mandarin. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is just crazy. What's mm. happening here? And I thought, I don't want a real job. Let me go to Costa Rica or not Costa Rica, from Costa Rica to mainland China. I'll stay there for a year. I'll learn the culture language. I'll do everything that I did in Costa Rica. But but there and it'll really put me in a good position for the rest of my life, being a mechanical engineer that speaks Spanish, that speaks Mandarin, you know, from Silicon Valley. I was thinking, OK, the. Every door will open up in the future. And we'll get back to that because it really more closed than open because of that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I went to China. It was more difficult than I thought. I ended up staying there almost five years. Uh, in that time, I did go to Europe for about six months before going back. So I was abroad for a total of about eight years after college. I had an okay exit. Partner bought me out for a company we started. That was the third company I started in China. The first two were complete disasters that... I learned a lot from that allowed the third one to actually be successful. And those two others are stories that whenever I even tell people here, they shake their heads like, nah, that didn't happen. That that didn't happen. I'm like, no, that's that that really happened. And uh, even the third company, people most of the time don't believe me. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. 
partner bought me out, came back to the U.S. 2013. Normal corporations, big companies thought I'd all quit. They're like, you're going to get bored here in a year. I mean, I was interviewing at some of the, you know, Salesforce, who's all these big companies here in Silicon Valley. And they all said the same thing. You'll get bored, leave. The startup ecosystem loved me. Because of that, I got connected with a bunch of angel investors. I started helping out one angel group, the second oldest angel group in Silicon Valley. It went from me just helping to then being one of the deal screeners. And then after a while, I was the investment director of this group. I'd look at 100 companies a month, filter it down, get on calls with 20 or 30, filter that down to meet with 10, 15, and then bring in five or so to meet with the members to actually pitch to. And maybe one would get a check. Uh, and then I was doing deal flow agreements with all this new money coming from mainland China. This was back 2017, 2018. I spoke Mandarin. I was with this angel group that had 20 years of connections in Silicon Valley. I could speak to this one group that had no connections but had money. And I was pairing them off in some deal flow agreements. One group said, hey, you know, come on board. Work with us. We're backed by this very large land development company in China. They're building all these tech parks, and we want someone to help take companies from here, set up their operations in China, and vice versa. I did that for a number of years. Got to know a bunch of investors in that process because I was making intros to everyone. And an investment mm -hmm. bank that I made an intro to that made a lot of money was like, hey, you know, you should just come on board. We'll sponsor your licenses. And then that was one and then when the pandemic started i switched over to the one i'm currently at so you had this crazy path of just doing one thing after another after another always pivoting but when you look at the the skill set you have okay good with people adaptable able to listen able to create stories and match people based on investment theses from listening you know mechanical engineer background there's a lot of components that really apply to the investment banking that I'm doing right now. So there's a lot of times when people literally call me out in groups and be and say, Hey, you never went to Harvard or Stanford or any of these places. What makes yeah. you qualified investment banker? And I'll say, I've, I've been parts of billion dollar real estate transactions and I've been parts of this and I've been parts of that throughout my career. And if, you know, I'm able to at one time do contract negotiations in Mandarin, the writing and everything. I think I can handle the deal we're working on now. And that normally shuts them up. <laughs> So <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, it's funny though. It's not until you've actually got the hindsight uh, later on that you see all the ingredients that have come together that all make, you know, that all help you with whatever it is that you're working on today. Like I've got a 17 year old, so he's just about to go out into the world. And so helping him think about his future and going, Hey mate, like don't get tied up in the path because <laughs> every, that's just such a great example of every pathway leads to another pathway. Just be decisive. Like just go after stuff that seems interesting where you're going to learn and each one of those will fork off into something else. And at some point those ingredients will come together and really help you. But like, don't get all swept up in, I have to design this perfect pathway because that's, that's where everybody else is going. It's like, just forget about it. I mean, some of the craziest stuff I've done in my past have turned out to be the most beneficial. There's a little, there's a time there as a personal trainer. You'd think like, how does that have anything to do it taught me how to take goals, break it down into smaller goals and smaller chunks and create this, mm. you know, six month, one year timeline. I, I substitute English teaching sometimes when I was in mainland China. Taught me the same thing, course, course catalogs, how to, all these things apply to investment. All these things apply to business. All these things apply mm. to processes, everything. And we can talk about that later, yeah. but it's crazy. The, the things that one time in your life people laugh at and the other times you're like, mm. hey, that's, it's moneymaker now. You know, like, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm with you. 
Well, let's. Um, I mean, that, yeah, probably that gives to our audience a good sense of the fact that you've you've done a lot of things that are going to be pretty relevant to our conversation today, and uh, and taken a bit of a different path. So I really I really like that. Maybe we can set up just a almost an avatar, if you like, because you know there's there's such a range. You know, we had a good chat offline about the fact. Well, a business that's doing a million bucks in EBITDA versus a business that's doing five million dollars in EBITDA actually has quite a different set of. Um, I mean, the business obviously looks quite different in terms of its maturity, in terms of its leadership structure, in terms of the kinds of buyers that are going to be interested in that sort of size. So maybe I thought we'd we'd take a bit of a, um, a sort of a hypothetical based on maybe a typical founder in our community. Well, let's say someone who's you know ten mil in rev, two to two and a half mil in EBITDA, so that you know twenty to twenty five percent EBITDA. Let's say they're a training business, maybe they're you know selling. I don't know, they're selling courses for people to look to change careers. So they don't really have recurring revenue. They've got a pretty transactional services business, but it's consistent and it grows each year. And it's got some key leaders in place, you know, there's some sales managers and marketing people and, and uh, you know, a, a, a reasonable, um, no C-suite, but a reasonable, you know, management team that's capable of running the operation. But fundamentally, the founder's still the CEO, you know, late 50s, this is the last business, not interested in doing anything else. So happy to stick around for, you know, earn out periods, like not in a rush to get out, but trying to figure out the right time maybe to sort of create uh, create value and thinking about what their options are over, say, the next sort of three years as the business grows. Um, so we can come back to that as a, you know, the, almost the person that we're talking to today. But maybe if we start from your perspective, Sean, what a lot of founders, because um, the vast majority of founders in this community will not have sold a business before. Um, and so they don't even know what the process is. Like what, what is involved uh, for a founder? So can you just maybe just take us through at a high level steps in the process? Ooh, good. And I really like that in example or the, uh, the, uh, the company to, that to use. I really like the, the number. I like everything there. I think that's a perfect example to use. So before the transaction, so we'll break it down into, I guess, three parts and then that middle part even break it down further. So you'd have the, you know, before even going out and hiring the investment banker to go out to market, you'd have the whole process and then you'd have post-closing. So even before the investment banker comes in the picture, probably should talk to a wealth advisor, tax advisor, all these people on your core team, you know, find that lawyer that, you know, that has some experience in MMA that you like, that accountant, just all these people that have that experts in the past. The reason why is, Yes, you can find them during the process, but then you'll be rushing it, right? You mm. might be getting recommendations and you're like, you know, this person doesn't really fit my fit risk me. profile. Mm. It doesn't, you know, we don't mesh. Like you don't want that lawyer that's sitting there going, okay, I'm, I'm at the littlest thing. I'm stopping this deal. You know, if your personality mm. is, hey, we're going full steam ahead. I'm selling this, you know, that's it. You know, what's that? On a scale of one to ten, that risk tolerance. If you're a two or a four and your lawyer is a nine, you know, that doesn't work. Mm. But if you're a two or four and the lawyer's a two or four and the account, you know, everyone involved has a similar risk profile for the deal, the deal's gonna, you know, be comfortable for everyone to move forward at each of the steps first. This person fine with this person, that's fine with this one, that's fine with that one. So get to know your team early on and you know. That first year, even before you hire in the investment banker, you know, talk to that investment banker. Say, hey, a year from now, two years from now, I'm thinking of exit. What should I do? And he'll probably say or she'll probably say, you know, give me your, your last years of financials. Let's create, you know, do you have everything in like a mini data room just so I can kind of learn about this business so I can give you some feedback on it? Is your customer concentration too high? Is, 
You know, do you have yeah. all your, your sales and marketing processes built out? Have you been tracking these metrics? You have or you haven't? If you haven't, okay, you know, for your industry, we should really be tracking these. Let's let's look at the lifetime value, the cost of acquiring a customer. Let's talk about all these, you know, maybe your net promoter score. Let's see how those change over time and let's see them going in the right direction because, you know, we can fix some things, but some things take longer time. And maybe you'll want that one, two, three years of this data before going out to sell it so you have that maximum value. And we can definitely, and, and every industry is different. So one industry might want these metrics, another might want these other. Um, you know, find out what your business focuses on and see if you can get those numbers better than, than average, better than the competition out there so you can get that mm. premium. So now we're moving into, okay, it's time to actually sell the business. And that process, a lot of people think, okay, if I start October, we're going to be done by year's end. And that's not <laughs> the truth at all. Right, I've had people happening. come to me <laughs> saying, hey, you know, this is going to be a quick transaction. I want to get this done before Christmas. And you're sitting there going, wait, what? Excuse me? Hold on. <laughs> the reality is these processes take time. There's a lot of steps involved, but some steps can be moved a little bit quicker than others especially if you're prepared for it. So think six to nine months. I mean, really think yeah. six to nine months on average, and it might go longer. It might go up to that year because who knows what's going to happen in due diligence. Maybe the economy mm. changes. Maybe something happens that buyers 30 days in, they pull out, they say, hey, I can't for yeah. some reason. And then you're going back out and, and to one of the other people that yeah. might have submitted an LOI, and we can go into all that. And then having those conversations again. But let's go back to this whole process of, you know, step one, you're going to be building out a data room. Now, if you've gone out and raised capital, you're probably familiar with it. Or, you know, if not, a data room, all it is is putting all the information of the business in one central location. And that information would be, you know, the last couple of years of financials, a pro forma, a pro forma that's thought out and believable, not just, okay, we're going to scale 300% next year. It would have to be okay. We're gonna scale. But we only did fifteen percent last year. We only did fifteen, and our discount cash flow <laughs> analysis puts us at a hundred million dollar company. Because look at yeah. this, we go from here to here, and you're like, great. Yeah, we just all we have to do, we're just gonna add twenty salespeople at exactly the same time, and they're all gonna start delivering to hundred percent capacity on day two. So it's it's an easy easy spreadsheet calculation, and zero account <laughs> account executives to service those accounts, and right. and somehow we have yeah. an uh, an app in the Apple store, but we don't have an iOS developer. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen those spreadsheets. Oh my gosh. I, I've, oh. It, it's yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty hilarious when someone's like, yeah, I just take this one spreadsheet I found online and I adapt it to my business, even okay. though it's not related to my business and come up with something else. And here you go. Actually, let me let me tell a story about that briefly, Sean, because you know last last year I was helping a publicly listed company do some um, acquisitions in the education industry, and we were looking at this business, and it was actually a re it was in a business that um, had basically was going through a bit of a turnaround. It had a it had a sort of a tail off period. They'd installed a new general manager. A new general manager was absolutely the right guy. He was doing an excellent job. He turned the business around. He restructured the cost base. He restructured the products. Like everything was going in the right direction. And they, they sort of had this bounce from, they were doing 2 million EBITDA, then they did one, then they did pretty much nothing. Then they'd bounce back to one. They were back to uh, maybe, maybe two or something. And then the next, the next year they were going to do seven and a half. And the following year wow. they were going to do 17. And I was like, <laughs> hey guys, um, <laughs> this is great. 
but let's just talk about the assumptions that underpin this model. And what was really interesting was, and people don't necessarily recognize this um, in the process, but that document was the primary thing that made, this was an excellent business. And I was having to advise this company to say, actually guys, just forget the financial model that you've got in front of you. We'll, we'll build our own model, right? But the business is excellent. Um, it's got the good bones, it's got a great leader. It's got all the things that we want and it's not going to do those numbers, but it is going to do something that's positive that we're going to get a return on. So we'll obviously rebuild that model and then we relook at it. But as a result of seeing that document, they were like, well, I just don't believe it. Like if they're going to put that document in front of us, what else are they going to put in front of us? What else are we going to find in due diligence? And, you know, people don't often appreciate that like a big part of this process is building trust and transparency yep. and believability. And so I said to the CEO, I'm like, mate, you didn't put this document together, did you? And he was like, you've met the owner. He's like, that's what the owner wanted. And I was like, oh. you know, the CEO just could not get the owner to put, to put in the data room the financial model that the actual CEO believed in. He had, his, he had a model. He knew what the numbers were, but the owner wanted to really inflate it, thinking they were going to get some massive um, sale price as a result because everyone was going to believe it. But actually everybody not only didn't believe it, we didn't buy that business and we exited the process because they'd just gone to town on some crazy crazy assumptions that were not believable. So they absolutely scuttled the deal that could have been a good deal for them. I mean, I think you're right on the point when you said trust there. Because, I mean, the data room, this whole process is de-risking the investment for the for the buyer. And if they can't see that, mm. if they, if they, mm. oh, you're right on right on point with that. I mean, the whole the whole process is to build that confidence that end to that end person that this company that the it's going to be you know predictable, transferable revenue that this is how our models are actually going to play out. And if they see something like that, and yeah, <laughs> and actually, you know, interestingly, as you say that, um, when I think about a data room, I've seen founders before what have this desire because you know they've never had to open up the you know they've never had to open up the coat before and so they're a bit scared of kind of putting you know creating a lot of transparency in there and and but the advice from me is always if you don't put that information in there you are you're incrementally increasing two to three weeks you know of time every time there's a key document that's not in there because someone discovers it they're always, they're always going to ask for it like you know, I give most clients a sort of standard list, you know, a hundred point sort of DD checklist. I'm like, this is the standard stuff before we even get to your industry. You know, this is like, everyone's going to want to see these things. So just get on with it and, and giving it to them because otherwise they're going to ask questions in the process, which is going to take you time. You won't have developed it. You're going to have to go and develop it whilst you're trying to run the business. It's actually just making your life way harder. Like do that upfront work, get all the information in there to your point. So they go through the DD process and go, you know, what the best thing that you could get as an outcome is they come out of the DD process and say, there was nothing that we discovered in the DD process that you hadn't told us. Like no red flags, just, it was exactly as you said it was going to be. Well, to add on that, I mean, two things. One, when you add everything to the data room at the very beginning, that investment banker, whoever you're working with to create the market materials has more information to go on. And the last thing you want is to create this SIM or this piece of information that gets sent out there that has a number that when they check a data room later after they've gone through that they see something that's contradictive and they're like wait a second uh, the sure, people says, may not have heard the acronym sim can oh, you just explain what you sorry you sorry sorry so confidential information memorandum so the data in the data room uh will be made into a piece of marketing material normally there'll be a blind profile so that has 
you know, like a teaser, something that just has enough information on a company to kind of whet their appetite to find out more. It's not going to have the, enough information to know which company it is, but it'll say, you know, the sector, it'll talk about, you know, maybe the financials the last two years and the, and the next three years predicted, maybe some key customers, some things about the business where the person that gets it, the private equity group or the strategic will go, hey, I want to know more about this company. I'm very interested. I'm going to spend the time. Then they'll sign a normally a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, which says, you know, this information, you know, you can't share with people. It kind of protects that confidentiality of it. And then they'll get a SIM, which is a confidential information memorandum, which is basically a summary of the data room. So think of a 60-page mm-hmm. document that really goes into the weeds on this and really gives the the end uh, either private equity, strategic, or whoever, enough information for them to go, okay, we're really going to dive deep into this. We're going to make an offer. We want to set up a management meeting. We want to spend a lot of our resources to find out about this company because we're really serious about moving forward with this. So mm. that sim, if if you create it, and then later on there's information in the data room that's been updated since the sim got sent, sent out and it's conflicting or this information, they're like, hey, that's kind of key. Why wasn't that in the SIM? Huh. It, it brings up questions again and that trust factor. Mm-hmm. And the because mm-hmm. their side is going to be analyzing everything because they don't want any liability. They don't want any surprises. They want to model out everything. They A lot of people on that side of the transaction, the buyer side, are looking for ways to kill the deal. There are those definitely those champions <laughs> that want it to happen. But then there's other people on that team that, hey, you know their goal is to make sure it doesn't. So, mm. so back back to the process. Oh, and, and talk mm. about the data room. How granular I've seen it. The most granular one I've ever seen so far, or hypothetically, because I don't know, I'm supposed to talk about things. I guess is <laughs> one one founder had the transcriptions for every podcast they've ever been on in the data room. That was that was the most and. The people on the other side went, oh my gosh, I've never seen this. And because of that, completely trusted the, the whole process. They were enamored. Mm. They're like, I've never seen a data room so clean and so thorough in my life. And these people mm. had been doing transactions for years and years. And when they saw the, every podcast the host mm. had ever been on transcribed in its, its own folder, they went, <laughs> they, wow. their yeah. jaws dropped. They're clearly so, organized willing to be transparent, like, yeah, it just, it breeds trust. And, you know, some people, uh, people may not realize this, but I've been in organizations where as part of the deal team, we might have six or seven people working on this deal. You know, there's a lot of resources often being deployed. To, and it could be obviously significantly more if it's a big, if it's a really big business. But we also then um, would have a, uh, a, the deal teams, the deal team would get split into two and would essentially debate the deal. You know, you'd have a kind of, uh, a, a team voting for the deal and having to present the reasons why we should do the deal. The other job, the other half of the team's job is to figure out why we should kill the deal. And they basically, that's kind of the investment committee is like the two opposing sides present the case and then, you know, and then uh, a decision's got to be made. And it's a really interesting process. But so to your point, there are people looking and there are people who will have their sort of rose colored glasses on looking for all the reasons to do the deal. And so, yes, your financial projections and how amazing the business is going to look is, is going to be key. But it's just as many people, if not more, looking for every reason not to do it because this is a risk assessment, right? Like if we deploy this money, how risky is it? How likely is it that we're going to blow that money up or go backwards because that's not going to work well for anyone. So they're, they're going to spend time on it. 
All right, going back to that that whole process. So data room is being built out. It's got all the you know, articles, incorporation, everything you can think of there. You've built out the marketing materials. We talked about the blind profile. We talked about the confidential information memorandum. We're also creating the buyers list at that time. If this is an active process, if it's a passive process, what I mean by passive is there's some people that will go to groups that just basically put the company on some websites. They might have a few buyers that they know for, for this size of a transaction. An active process, you're out there emailing, calling, everything. You're, you're bringing the buyers in. You're contacting them directly based on their investment thesis. You know who you're targeting. You've created that information from databases, from your network, from you know 30 years or whatever in the space. And you're going, okay, this deal, based on the parameters that they invest in, fit perfect. You're matching it up sector, size, check size. I mean, you're not going to bring a deal that's a $50 million deal to someone that writes a minimum $100 million check or mm. maximum a $20 million check. It's got to it's got to mm. be that fit on both sides to maximize everyone's time. Yeah. Then it's going to go from there. Depending on, on the deal, it might just go to a LOI or an IOI, indication of interest or a letter of intent. Uh, both are non-buying, but the indication of interest is normally, hey, you know, we're roughly estimating this company at a range between you know, EBITDA five and six. It, it's it's you know more 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 broad the information, and hopefully in advance, if you've kind of done the process right, you've told people, hey, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for you to put a valuation on this company for what reasons? We're looking to show that. You know, you have the capital to actually invest in this company or where it's coming from. Hey, we're looking for just some overall information. Then from there, you know, you're narrowing the funnel. So the whole thing is a funnel process, right? From that very beginning where you're messaging everyone to that more narrow, you're getting these indication of interest, that more narrow, you're getting that letter of intent. To hopefully you find that one buyer that fits perfect, whether it's strategic or, or, or financial. Then you go into due diligence. Hopefully you can get that done in a reasonable amount of time, maybe 60 days, and then just, you know definitive agreement, everything's transferred, you're good, and then it's that integration post-transaction time. So think maybe a year to two or three years to prepare, six to nine months that transaction, and then however long the integration after. So that's, I mean, you're talking three to five years for a proper sale versus, hey, let's mm-hmm. do this in three months which yeah. a lot of people think. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So let's talk about then, because I'm conscious of how much time we've got today. I know one of the things that, uh, obviously the meat, the, the meat on this topic for a lot of people is how do I maximize the valuation? How do, what, what are the things I need to be considering in a business this size? You know, so we talked about the sort of, you know, $2.5 million EBITDA on a 10 mil revenue base. We've got some leaders in place. What are some of the things that you think will help them optimize value? And then we'll talk about some of the things that are probably going to reduce the, the, the numbers of people they can sell to uh, at, or increase the risk profile fundamentally and therefore make it less likely that they'll get a decent price. So to start, I mean, the first thing, even before to maximize the value is think about maximizing what you'll get out of the deal by talking to that wealth advisor, by talking to that tax advisor. Because the last thing you want is getting this check and giving 40% to the government when in reality, if you done just tweak the little things you give, almost none to the government. So mm. talk to those people far enough in advance to also kind of plan out that exit of, hey, 
I what I want to do with the rest of my life will require me to have an exit of this size. And then you can kind of judge your company. So for the example right there, maybe you're thinking, okay, I could sell this company for $10 million. Maybe you own 100% of it. Well, you've talked to your wealth advisor, you've talked to your tax planner, and they say, if you get anything above $6.5, 7000000 you're going to live life the way you dream. It's all planned out. Here it is. And, and the person's going, okay, perfect. So I have that great margin uh, on both sides. So I'm pretty sure you know, when I go out to market, I'll be able to fulfill everything I want to do. Versus that other person that might go, I'm not planning out anything. I have this big dream. And then it's a sudden surprise when they go out to market and like, oh my gosh, I can't realize it because I'm paying all these taxes. I, I should have done these changes to increase it within this range. And so before start planning and know those numbers that you want to hit so that you have that lifestyle post-sale that, that you dream of. I mean, that, that's the first advice. Yeah. Then for the company itself, and Sean, I'm sure you can share some stories of, of founders you've mm. talked to that you just kind of shake your head and you're like, wait, why did you start planning this after the transaction was done? Why not before? So, Yeah, no, I'm with you. And actually, I think probably one of the hardest questions for founders is they haven't really thought about how much money they need post-transaction. Like they haven't actually done the thinking to go, well, this is what I would be happy as long as that's the number that hits the bank account. They haven't actually done that thinking. So it's quite difficult to reverse engineer it because as you said, once you, they go, oh, you know, 5 million sounds like a big number. And you're like, okay, yeah, 5 million, less costs, less taxes. Oh, you, there's two of you. Okay. Like the number's starting to get a lot smaller. Like this may not be a life-changing amount of money anymore. Um, you know, okay, maybe they can pay the house off, but maybe not a lot more. And so, and you know, fundamentally, what are you selling when you think about the, the multiple? You're selling future earnings, right? So it's like, well, if I only can sell the company for three times EBITDA, well, if the business wasn't even growing in the next three years, I'd get that EBITDA into my own, or I could, you know, I could take that EBITDA out of the business depending on the kind of working capital profile. It's like, well, that's what you're selling. You're selling future cash flow. And if the business is growing, you're going to find that you actually get that number pretty quickly um, if you just hang on to the business and keep growing it. So there's a real sort of dichotomy there. But to your point, the starting point is, well, what is my, what is my kind of walk away minimum? And then, assuming you've then understood taxes and thought about costs on top of it, then you get to a sale price and then you're getting to a, a, a sale price versus the multiple. And then now we're into the, well, is that a reasonable, do I need 12 times or can I actually get that outcome on three or four? You know, like then obviously there's a lot of factors in terms of the business, but yeah, let's talk about some of those factors then. Okay. Let's assume they've, they've, let's say in this scenario, for you, as, as you said, let's say, um, if they were to sell this business for 10 million bucks, so four times EBITDA, they're comfortable with the walkaway price. They've done the tax planning. They think that's going to give them the lifetime, the lifestyle they want. And they, and they think that, you know, that that's sort of achievable. How do they then think about the, the optimization of that? How do they get sort of more and what things would be likely to contribute to them getting less? Perfect. And, and to add on that last, just one other thing that the, having that kind of that number in your mind that, is key to the whole process is you'll have the number from begin your your walk away point and that keeps you sane throughout this whole journey because mm. one thing that I think your listeners when it's their first time going through the process they're not going to understand the highs and the lows until going through it and <laughs> I mean Sean you're smiling so I think you've seen it whereas <laughs> you know you go out to market 
you might not be getting offers that you thought on, on that first week and you hit these lows. Or you start getting offers and your significant other's already spent the money and you start freaking yeah. out going, wait a second, the, the, the money's not in the bank. What, what are you doing buying this or buying that? Adding stress or mm. the, you know, keeping it secret from those colleagues or your, your employees that you've worked with for the last eight, 10 years, thinking in the back of your mind, I might have to let the, some of these people go or what's going to happen or even that. This is my been on my identity the last you know ten years of my life. What am I going to do post? So having that thought out before the transaction, having those numbers, having kind of that visualization can keep people more sane throughout this very very emotional journey. So mm. wanted to add that. Now going yeah, into I the numbers, right. <laughs> mm. and actually, can I just say one other thing? Um, one of the things that uh, I remember one of the first negotiation skills courses uh, I did really talked about, you know, you have to understand your BATNA, which is your, uh, I can't remember what it stands for now, best available um, alternative. Do you remember what it stands for, BATNA? Yeah, T best N alternative. Best, best alternative. It's basically essentially, you know, your, your walk away point. Yeah. Minimum. What, yeah, it's what your walk away point is exactly. But, you know, I, the number of processes I've been in, just, I, I always just found this super fascinating. The first time I got involved in M&A, there was a, you know, there was a, there was a deal where someone's, where the, where the seller had said, well, we can go through the process and we can talk, negotiate, yada, yada, yada. But basically we're not going to be selling it for any less than seven times ever done. Like that's it. Like it was actually, it was just right up front and they just, and so, um, and that was probably a premium for that market and for the business. And actually it was probably worth five, but they were like, we will not be, no matter what comes out of this process, we will not be selling to you for less than seven. So please do your due diligence. Please come and negotiate anything that you think kind of needs adjustment, <laughs> but recognize we're still not going to sell it for less than seven. And I was like, that's so interesting um, that somebody would be that sort of bold and brassy. But in the end, the number of conversations that it influenced on our side as we were the, we were the potential purchasers, um, people would come back and go, yeah, oh, we could do this and we could do this. And we've looked at this in the model and we think that's probably, there's probably a discount opportunity there. And this thing over here, like we need to normalize that out and so on. But then it just continued to come back to this, <laughs> this dialogue that I had up front was like, yeah, but they're not going to sell it for less than seven times. So there's no point going to them and saying, well, we think it's worth five. They're not even going to entertain the conversation. So we've either got to decide, are we in or are we out? And it was so interesting that they'd actually, I'm not sure if it's always the right strategy, that's for sure. But um, because, you know, fundamentally you're essentially setting a price, maybe you could have got more. But anyway, this actually, because they'd asked, for, they wanted a premium and it was actually a good business, um, it, it just put a floor limit on the thinking of the purchaser. I don't know if you've seen that much, Sean. I'm sure it works out badly sometimes because it probably could have knocked us out very easily, but um, in the end it didn't. What's kind of crazy with that one is, I mean, I've talked to other investment bankers about that going, hey, what happens when you have, you're working with that engagement where the person sets that that floor that is just unrealistic and some people just come back to me and they're like it always changes when there's real money in front of them i'm like oh mm. so so i mean but i've seen yeah. i've seen i've seen different i've i've seen where yeah. it doesn't change you know where yeah. that number is the number but then i've also seen where hey once there's a real check and they go you know this is real money this changes my yeah. life yeah. okay i will <laughs> Maybe I'll I'm more actually, flexible yeah, right. now. Yeah, these guys didn't, but the, yeah, it's de I think it's definitely possible. So yeah, but no, not certainly not advising that that's a great <laughs> starting point. But to your point, they had a very clear price. They knew what their walk away was. They weren't going to have a conversation or anything less than that. And so that it actually, it, for them, 
it actually strengthened their position, um, didn't weaken it. So one th- one so thing for that on though, that also for for all the people you're talking to, you're you're advising that early on, talk to them about your flexibility. So I, mm. just piggybacking on that, where you know you had that one that said, "Hey, this is the floor." You could always be okay. This is the floor, but I'm gonna be very flexible with my terms, whether it's mm-hmm. you know that cash component, that earnout, the seller's note, the roller, whatever. Just Hey, I got this number in my head, but I'm flexible with everything else. So get there, or, or hey, you know, this is a line in the sand, sand for the cash component only, and everything else is gravy for people to, to compete against or whatever it is. But relaying that flexibility early on and having conversations, mm-hmm. what all those mean, is huge. And, and maybe that, I mean, maybe I just threw a bunch of words out there. I've noticed a lot of people um, don't quite understand a seller's note or an earnout or rollover and all those terms. Do you explain those quickly? Yeah. So so think of it this way. There's a lot of different components of that are possible in a transaction. Uh, you have that cash component, which is, you know, this is the amount of money. Great. It's the most secure. Um, you know, you know what you're going to get. Then you have the seller's note, which is, you know, the IOU, the debt component, where they're going to pay you back. And if not, you know, you, you have a recourse. You're able to, you know, have a recourse component because you're on the debt stack, depending on where you are, whether first position, second, or whatever. But you know they'll pay you that money. The earnout it will be tied to something, whether maybe it's your time of employment there, revenue, EBITDA, something like that. Where if these things are met, then you'll get paid. Rollover is cash in the new entity, and all that stuff. And and there's there's more, but you can play around with these so much where it's Maybe that seller's note is over a five-year span. Maybe it's over three years. Maybe the first year there's a holiday where nothing's paid and then it's monthly. Or maybe it's every quarter. Or maybe it's small amounts with a huge balloon. Maybe the earnout is. So with the flexibility of all this fi- financial, however you may call it, those numbers can range quite a bit with what the buyer gives you because they're going to look at their risk profile and go, okay, Cash is, is this risky, sellers are this risky, earnouts is this risky over this amount of time, and we see in our models this way. So we're able to give this higher number to them. And if you're open to these types of conversations, yes, you know, it is more risky on the seller's point for each of these things, but you can get those higher numbers. And sometimes the seller would like that because, well, this money is deferred. I'm not paying taxes. This is part of that wealth building strategy. Hey, actually, it's getting better interest because there's an interest on that debt seller's note that's higher than the banks are paying. Hey, actually, I'm really liking these people that are acquiring us, this private equity group. And I think in the next three years, they're really going to increase this company. And when they sell it, I'd like to get a win then. So maybe I'll roll over some in this equity component. And, you know, being open to these conversations can change the dynamics of the deal completely. Mm -hmm. So have yeah. those conversations early on with whoever you're working with because when they have their conversations, they can mention this. Hey, yeah, my, my client here, they, they want this number, but they're really flexible on how to get there. Or, hey, I, mm. the, the client's looking for at least minimum this much cash on closing, and then, and then these other components, they're, they're flexible. It's just saying that expectations for the flexibility in the terms of the deal, and it could change everything in the conversations you're having with, 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 with the buyers. So yeah. something just yeah. to think about on day one, going into this sale of the numbers you need to hit, 
when you're talking to your wealth advisors, your tax planners, that because each one is handled differently. And and that was a lot there. We could do a whole episode on that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I think, you know, it, it really does. Um, I guess it's like a property transaction, right? Where you, you may have a particular number, you might be really flexible on the settlement. You may be happy to fix some things before the place gets sold, or you may be like, no, I want this, you know, unconditional 30 days, no, no conditions whatsoever, but I'm willing to take a haircut because I don't have to deal with all the other stuff. Um, there's, it is about kind of flexibility of terms. And to your point, there's a whole open conversation there. So maybe that's one we return to in our, um, in our next chat. So then if you think about, um, cause obviously those things can really help you to optimize the deal. Uh, as one example, your business might be on a great growth trajectory and you might be quite happy to hang around for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months because you love the business. There's no major kind of risks from your perspective. You'd be, you know, maybe you weren't even looking for a sale and you got a, an offer that you weren't expecting. Well, if you've got another 12 or 18 months, you might be quite happy with an earnout because you'll get, you know, a multiple on last year's um, EBITDA, but actually you'd really like a bit of, you know, a, a, a better multiple on next year's EBITDA and the kind of the blending of the two gives you a better outcome. So to your point, they might, you might still want a cash component that's X dollars on day one, um, but you're happy to take a balance because you think you'll actually make a little bit more. But there's other, other founders who'd be like, I want to be out of here in 30 days. Yeah. Like, you know, 30 days post sale. And I've seen one of those recently where the company that was acquiring wanted to hold back sort of 10 or wanted to have, you know, 10 or 15% of the price attached to an earnout, essentially the following year's financials. But they also wanted the founders to leave within 30 days. And I was like, hang on a second. So they're going to be in control of the business, but then you're going to have 10 to 15% at risk. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Like if you're staying around and you've got influence over the outcome, great. But if you're not, then that seems a little bit interesting. So anyway, um, yeah, there's, there's probably a whole, maybe we do a, a, you know, as part of a podcast too with you, Sean, we'll talk about terms um, and some of the opportunities in there. What about just you know, straight up things that you think an investor's looking for in a business like this that's going to influence them wanting to pay a higher price um, versus things that are likely to make them want to push hard for a discount? So. Let's go back to the the answer of de-risking. So how can we create a situation where the buyer is looking at this as as little risk as possible with the business as a whole? So you have, there's no concentration of, of clients. You don't have those clients that are making up 30, 40, 50% of, of sales. You know, there's a lot of clients making up small amounts. So if you lose a couple, no big deal. You have those founders or the people on the team that maybe step out but the business is still running because the processes are so well laid out where everyone there knows step by step what to do. You have the numbers that prove this over time where it's not, okay, for the last three months, this is our lifetime value of a, a client, but no, no, it's actually been the last two, three years we have the data and they keep getting better, better, better. And there's a trajectory. Here's everything we've changed. This is what we're doing now. It's basically this book that you can almost hand them like a manual for every component of the company all laid out thought out i mean that's when you get that premium on the company where it's hey these systems have been thought out they're proven look at the track record look at all the components we're we're good with this 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 is going to add to to us this is we're we're confident it's going to hit these numbers moving forward in all our projections and what they're telling us I mean, those are the companies that get that premium when you look at their metrics versus everyone else in the industry and say, oh, they're better here. They're better there. That's, that's, 
that gives them confidence thinking that, okay, the money we're investing, we're going to get our money back at a multiple we're happy with. So that's mm-hmm. when you're building out that business for sale, you should be looking at it going, okay, where are my numbers that are, you know, not above industry average, the, the cost of acquiring a customer, or maybe, you know, th- there, there's things of, of that people for some reason don't put value on, but there is value such as likes and, and all that information on, on the web, you know, 500 five-star reviews, this social media, mm-hmm. the, this the keywords, Hey, we're, there's companies I've talked to. They're like, yeah, we're, we're top, you know, SEO for these keywords that drive this much organic traffic and that. And they won't even mention that to me until months in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Hey, how do you get so much organic traffic? Oh yeah. Well, all this SEO and everything we rank on these keywords, like that has value. That has a ton mm. of value. There, there's, so I guess I got a little off track there of just, you know, there's a lot of value that people don't see in their companies. You know, if you, there, I, just the other day I was talking to, to a buddy of mine and he was telling me that uh, there's a company he's working with that I'm not sure if you're, you're fans of, you know, fans of basketball, if they've watched Golden State Warriors and that. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a health company here. And they were interviewed years past with the Golden State Warriors going to their facility after a game to decompress in like the ice saunas or whatever they have there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was on, it was on page eight of their website that no one knew about. And you're like, wait a second, the Golden State Warriors, best basketball team, one of the best in the world. You got Steph Curry video on the news. How come that's not everywhere? You know, homepage. Every that's a huge marketing piece. So there's all this collateral. Uh, that has value, but more than anything, I guess just a company that has the processes built out that step by step that people can follow, that everyone on the team and the culture, company culture is is a huge value add. Mm. Um, I mean, is is that culture one of we're we're going to be working if we get acquired in, in the right manner, or is everyone going to take what they can and take off? Or yeah, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot there, but it but all even, comes back. And if you think about even just the, you know, when you're often thinking about metrics and things that you're going to want to show, okay, so we'll go back to our $2.5 million education business. And as mm-hmm. you said, we're going to want to be able to show consistent improvement and planning and sophistication in our, all of the lead generation relevant metrics, the sales metrics, the lifetime value, the cost of acquisition, yada, yada. But actually on the cultural side, people often leave that completely out. And I go, wow, like where's your, where's your employee engagement survey that's got some transparency about actually where, where, how people feel about the company, how people feel about the product and the reputation of it and the leadership and the, you know, their engagement with leadership and are they getting what they want out of the role? And you, know, you may not have, it's not about having perfect scores and everything. It's about showing, hey, we got these results you know, two years ago. We put in, we, we addressed these top five issues. And then the following year that went from you know, 78% engagement to 84% engagement. And that's a great improvement. Like, it's actually that transparency and that sh- that that proof that you know how to improve the business, you know where your gaps are. That builds trust, but it also that's an, it's an easy way to help people understand what the culture is in a quant. You know, you think about a lot of this process is very. Um, there's some big quantitative elements. You've got a lot of people who specialize in the quantitative side. Uh, you know, lots of analysts and stuff, and pouring over the numbers and building models and all the rest. This actually gives them something quantitative but that talks to the qualitative element around um culture it could be a nice little addition oh i I think that's huge i mean especially these acquisitions now with 
people working remote and, and that the, the cultures and I mean, is this something where you, you add this company to your, your, you know, a platform company and everyone gets along and they grow or is it civil war happening on day one? I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a big deal. And how do you really know these companies, how they'll gel pre-transaction? So, I mean, like you said, having, having, having that information on the company itself, it's huge. It really is huge. But what I'm hearing you say, Sean, for the benefit of our community is uh, in terms of thinking about maximizing valuation or trying to get a, you know, trying to get a premium over another business that's, you know, if you put two businesses side by side an A and B and they've actually got exactly the same revenue, exactly the same EBITDA, exactly the same number of people, they sell the same products and so on. What are the things that is going to get one a premium versus the other? And actually what you've articulated is reverse engineering what somebody is going to consider higher risk. So it's like, what are the things that are going to increase my risk profile um, with this business? Okay, well, they don't have processes and systems well-documented. They're not so, if, you know, if somebody leaves in the leadership team, that thing's going to fall over. Or the founders actually, you know, it doesn't have a strong leadership team full stop and the founder's doing six jobs. And so when the founder leaves or if the founder leaves, it, depending on, you know, whether they're staying or not, then you've got a massive problem and you've got a huge kind of vendor cliff sort of risk um, scenarios. You're almost sort of reverse engineering all the things that people are going to be looking for as, you know, red flags or deal breakers and trying to make sure all of those things have been well thought about so that as they start doing that digging, they're actually, this is, this is stable. This is believable. This is trustworthy. This is solid. Um, and that starts to, as you, because if you think about what does the multiple represent for the buyer? Well, that also represents how long it's going to take them to get their money back. So if they're like, well, what's going to make them pay seven times versus five times? Well, they've got to be comfortable that if the business, they're obviously not going to buy the business not growing, but if, they, if the business wasn't growing, it's going to take them seven years to get their initial investment back before they make a dollar. So they then want the business to grow. They then want to have some other synergies they're going to be able to add on top. That's what you know, is going to help them feel like they are willing to pay a premium. But if they can see all these red flags everywhere, they're you're quickly turning into the territory where they're like, well, this is going to have to be bought pretty cheaply because we've really got to protect our money here. Uh, and we may have some, you know, turning around to do or some major problems that might come up and it really starts to change the, the price someone's willing to pay, right? Sean, I wish I just said your answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got to summarize your answer. So that was, that was good. That was helpful. That was helpful. Um, so I'm conscious we're almost at time, Sean, and I've, I've got so many more questions that I would like to ask you. So if you're willing to come back for an episode two, uh, I would love to book some time with you to do that um, and to, to keep digging if that's okay with you. But can I ask maybe one, we had a, we had a, we had a little um, bit of dialogue offline about strategic versus financial buyers. Cause there's some people that are, you know, very wedded to, it needs to be, you know, that you're only going to get a premium if you sell to a strategic. Um, and I understand there's a lot of benefits for that. So maybe you could just explain, the difference between a strategic and a financial buyer for a business this size, you know, two and a half million bucks. So maybe they've got that option. What, what, what does a strategic versus a financial buyer look like? And why would you choose one over the other? Or why would you sort of go after, you know, as part of your strategy, one after the other? Talk to me about your thinking around that. I think that's really interesting, especially now, because things are kind of changing in a, in a way. For companies of that size, you know, two and a half million EBITDA, for a strategic, think of it as someone in that space that ha has that business that this technology or the company could just be rolled into, you know, fantastic. You got the financial buyer that's going to be looking at it as EBITDA and going, okay, 
whatever we invest in, hopefully we get these these returns. And they're looking at more of a financial base, or at least that's kind of been the history of it. And so strategics, because there's so many other things that they can add to it, in the past have added a premium that the financial buyers, you know, even even with all their thinking, okay, I could pull this money out and, and recapture this, they haven't been able to to meet. But at least the conversations I've been having recently, things are kind of changing where those private equity groups are getting in and giving multiples similar to those strategic buyers. And some of that is because there's just so much money on the sidelines right now. There's so much money that these yeah. private equity groups have raised that they're going, hey, we got to start deploying this ASAP. And, you know, we're just not seeing as many of those those companies as in the past. And there's so much money competing for them that we have to kind of change our risk profile. We have to kind of change what we're offering these companies. So conversations I'm having strategic financial Lately, they've been pretty comparable, which less is less pretty interesting. interesting. So, yeah. I mean, who knows if that changes in the future or not. But, you know, as of right now, the decision between one or the other, you know, mm. it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because it, do, it does feel like that's changed, uh, changed a bit. And so I guess, you know, even it's like if we went back seven months ago, you know, people were finding getting um, – uh, money out of uh, venture capital pretty easy. And then four months ago, <laughs> not so much, uh, <laughs> locked up a little bit tightly at the moment. And, um, but I think you're, to your point, if you think about, let's say you're this education business, so I, I, you know, in working with a publicly listed company that I mentioned before, that's really interesting opportunities. They had significant databases of employers. Um, so very tight relationships with employers you know, who all wanted training. So we were looking for businesses, uh, for training businesses who were really strong with consumers who didn't have good relationships with businesses where immediately they'd be able to introduce those education businesses to the businesses and all of a sudden they've got a completely new revenue stream. It helps their existing customers. They're getting now access to the EBITDA of the business they've just purchased. So they, you know, they're going to be able to create a kind of accelerated um, amount of value out of that business because they can cross-fertilize the customers in, in two directions. So that's a good example of a strategic buy. Now, they were willing to pay more for, more mm. than you know, perhaps market rates as a result because they knew they can create more value. They didn't have to take any money out of the business. It wasn't about cost-cutting. It wasn't a financial engineering-type opportunity. It was just purely they could see revenue. Uh, they could see increased uh, returns because they actually thought they had revenue synergies um, as a result of the nature of that group. Or they also thought they could reduce risk because they had people in their business capable and already knew and understood this business model. So if the founder leaves or the directors leave or some managers leave, no big deal. We've got people we can deploy straight away. We know we can turn that business around. We're not going to lose a lot of money because we know what we're doing. They're not buying something they don't understand and therefore it's all the risk is within the people who are running it. So just for you know people's benefit, that's a kind of example of maybe a strategic buyer who would have uh, perhaps in the past paid a premium. But if if financial buyers are also really going, hey, we need to get some deal flow happening here. Like we've got some capital we've got to deploy. And if you're in if you're in a financial um, business, then you've got a fund, so you've got a whole bunch of people of people's money that you've just raised, and you've got a hundred million dollars to deploy. Um, that's an expensive problem to have if you're not deploying it right. Like you know you've got a time you've got a timeline ticking until those investors want their money back and want their return. So you've got to get deploying. Uh, so to your point, then that's probably putting some positive pressure on the amount they're willing to pay, uh, which is pretty handy. Um, 
So I know we've gone for a bit of a, a long, this is a longer than usual um, podcast, but you know, this is a great conversation for me, Sean. I'm really enjoying it, um, having it with you. And I think it's super valuable for our community. So would you be willing to come back and, and do another episode with us? Well, I mean, anything for my twin brother. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, and, and one other thing I should say, maybe I'll, um, I could put this, uh, if there are people in the, in the audience who would like a, a copy of a sort of a due diligence, um, checklist, you know, not a specific one for your industry, but just a typical one, feel free to email us at, um, questions at scallopspodcast.com. Happy to send that over to you. It's not going to be a prescription. Obviously you work with advisor. They're going to tell you exactly what it is that you need, but it gives you an idea of like when you're building a data room, if you've never really thought about this before, the kinds of you know, basic information that a potential purchaser uh, might be looking for from you. So I'll, um, no, I'll, we'll get you a copy of one if you would like that. Uh, Sean, it's been wonderful chatting to you today. How do people, how, where would you direct people to for more information or to get in touch or to follow along with you what you're doing? Uh, so if you want to find out more information about myself, what I focus on, so you know, mid-market investment banking, mergers, acquisition, growth capital between that 10 and $300 million transaction size, Connect with me on LinkedIn, just Sean, S-H-A-W-N, F-L-Y-N-N, Sean Flynn, investment banker. Or you could follow me on thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. That's thesiliconvalleypodcast.com, uh, where I interview entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. So between those, it's easy to get a hold of me. I love having conversations. Going back to our point today of a year, two years in advance of any type of transaction, I mean, that's the best time to start dialogue. So please reach out to me. and. I'll do my best to answer ASAP. Thanks a million, Sean. Uh, folks, I hope you got lots of value out of today. I'm sure you did. And make sure you tune in next time for uh, my next conversation with Sean Flynn as we unpack more about how to optimize uh, your outcomes in a sale process. Uh, let us know what you got out of today's show on LinkedIn. You can tag myself. You can tag Sean uh, once this episode is live. Um, you've been listening to the Scalarts podcast. I'm Sean Steele. And thanks so much for joining us. We'll speak to you again next week. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week. Mm-hmm.